0: This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast, and as usual I'm joined by my co-host Dave, or should I say my fellow monger?
1: <laughs> I mean <laughs> you started the Doom Mongery with your uh, with your your thumbnail on the previous episode and for those that haven't seen it, check the website www.roaringelephant.org, or check YouTube where you can see our I was gonna say glorious faces, but that's the it's Glorious Thumbnail. Thing. Doesn't yeah, you can traffic. see the glorious thumbnail. That's <laughs> it. That's it. And you can then watch the video, should you be uh, uh, should you be that way inclined. But yes, are. let's let's talk some more cloud statistics, and we'll see if these statistics will keep you up at night. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, mostly because
0: I've given up on the on live world and everything. I mean, that way <laughs> life gets so much easier anyway.
1: <laughs> right, so <laughs> moving on. Uh, we're now talking about the section of this that uh, is one of the largest sections of the overall doc. It's the cloud security statistics. And yes, cloud do-mongery security. Oh, so much to unpack here.
0: Oh, I mean you're the security expert, man, so take it. Well, away. Uh, At least that's why you, you always tell me.
1: I've I've spent some time in the field. That's all I'll say. Um 98% of organizations experienced a cloud security breach in the past 18 months. That's a very high number. That's a scarily high number.
0: But yeah. I mean, I'm assuming this is 90% of organizations that are in the cloud, experience the cloud. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, so the study involved 200 uh, CISOs, or Chief Information Security Officers, and other security decision makers from U.S. companies. Um, I mean, yes, but it again, it doesn't really tell the true story necessary like the the severity of a a cloud security breach can vary wildly from oh i just found out that a google doc was shared with public permissions like no one ever looked at it Mm -hmm. you know we've checked the audit logs and no one ever even looked at it and maybe it was just a a document template technically that's a security breach it's a very uh, low priority, low impact, uh, breach, but technically it is a breach. So this is, I think a little bit on the do mongery scaremongery side of things. Uh, I would be more interested in, in sort of understanding how many organizations had received maybe, um, you know, a, a breach that they considered to be significant. I would also be interested to understand if they used the same um, methodology or the same question, Like, what does that number look like for people not in the cloud? Because I'd imagine it's pretty much. I, I don't know whether I think that there's that much of a difference between number of security breaches that happen in cloud and number of people that have security breaches outside of that.
0: Uh, There is a difference, of course. I mean, the attack surface, if you're in the cloud, is way larger. Because if you're Mm -hmm. in the cloud, that means everything needs to be connected to the internet through VPNs, whatever connectivity you have. But still, it's out there and I need to join it from down here. So it must be exposed somehow. While on-premise stuff could be totally disconnected from the internet and that would give you a much higher level of security. So I'd say that cloud percentage will be higher just by the nature of it being cloud. Now you're right that the severity of the breach isn't explained here. And it would have been better to have this statistic related to the security breaches that forced a, uh, what you call Dis- the disclosure. Mm. Cause there are certain legislations now around the world that if you have a data loss yeah. or a data leak, you have to disclose it and tell the world and you can't keep it a secret mm-hmm. and just, I guess that's public information. So making a Cisco that would be easy, A <laughs> big ass risk. Mm. Uh, but that would give more information because that those typically uh, have been dis- defined already as being impactful and yeah, should be much mm. a lower number than this. A second thing I'm thinking about this one is when you're gonna migrate, if you're moving from on-premise to cloud, there's always a moment in time where things are in flux in motion and aren't totally completely whatever and those are times that are extra vulnerable and you'll get more data breaches or security mm-hmm. breaches in general i would assume and this statistic also doesn't really separate in for these companies in those 18 months where they're already in the cloud completely lock stock and barrel or maybe not everything but the, the cloud migration adoption has mm-hmm. finished and then we count the next 18 months or else is also the new 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 people going to cloud because again, cloud adoption, it's its complicated, it's new stuff, and you will experience security requirements and compliancy requirements that were not present before. And things like security compliancy, of course, that could also be seen as security breach because we weren't compliant with paragraph 24, subsection three, whatever, or whatever compliance <laughs> regulations out there, which are theoretically a security breach. But in reality, it's just, oh, we didn't, check that box or something like that. Mm, So yeah, I'd agree, bits overloaded. On the other hand, Mm. I do agree. I think that if you go into cloud, you will have to look at your security uh, profile because again, you're gonna be a big, a much bigger attack surface offering that to the world. And um, it's definitely a a, a new ball game. If you don't have a third team, if you don't have a CISO, if you don't have a SOC even, and you go into cloud, uh, might be a good idea to start thinking about implementing some change in the organization mm,
1: yeah so in terms of 72 percent of it security leaders rank cloud as top digital transformation priority
0: um <laughs> but we have to see yes. that in the uh, security part but in the Content that talks about PKA automation. automatization.
1: <laughs> well I, I think that's because that those are the other things that came up in the in the in the list. It's just that seventy-two percent of people said cloud, and therefore that's the the top. But
0: I think it's wrong actually. I think it's hundred mm-hmm. percent. Because digital transformation is more or less synonymous with going to the cloud. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is but this is from the perspective of it security leaders security execs so they they're not thinking about things necessarily from a like a holistic perspective on what what their digital digital transformation priority is for the whole company they're just thinking for infosec so yeah i, I i'm surprised that pki automation honestly i'm kind of surprised that it isn't something that is already already there and the fact is that like 72% of it of people are saying it's cloud but actually pki visibility um pki know, but, um, infrastructure is 71 percent. so uh, it seems to me given that 66% of people their top one is you know uh, use PK automation or PKI automation or in the midst of deploying it. 48, 49% this cloud-first PKI deployment approach, uh, lifecycle automation for that being 50%, and 71% is PKI visibility. So I, I actually think that these numbers are kind of all a bit screwy because if <laughs> that to me means that everything that they care about pretty much is in the PKI space, mm-hmm. And it just so happens that one of the point, one of the questions or one of the responses has one percentage point higher. But I would I would flip that, and I would actually say that you know, PKI infrastructure, automation, uh, deployment, and visibility as a whole seems like that's far more important to um, security leaders. When I look at those very uh, distilled facts, anyway, or distilled numbers.
0: Yeah, and also, I mean, my experience, PKI has kind of gotten less important because there's other ways of doing it now. PKI is a good way of doing it. It's a very standard way and it's how we've always done it, but there's mm. some new stuff that's uh, possible now and uh, looking at my own customer base where there was a lot of demand for this like a year and a half, two years ago, yeah, recently in the last six months, it hasn't really come up at all which is kind of sad because we did all the work to make it work and now nobody wants it anymore <laughs> but that's what security is like right um but yeah kind of a weird uh, statistic there i do like that uh, li- certificate lifecycle automation is also a high priority because yep. i mean i had a couple of uh big problems with ssl certificates being uh revoked outdated whatever and the whole world crashing down coming <laughs> back to candles and roofing fire on uh, roasting uh, animals on fire bits and stuff like that
1: <laughs> i mean it, it is kind of amusing that here we are you know so many years down the line of of things like ssl certificates being at this point very very commonplace uh, it's very unusual i would say at this point to browse a website that isn't ssl secured like that we we've gone through such a how long, how long do you think that journey has been, going from you know SSL being the exception versus SSL being the rule? I would guess at six or seven years.
0: Uh, I would say longer. Even I would say it's uh, over a decade, if not two decades, because SSL is uh, is really old. Actually, it's been around almost since the beginning of the no, internet. No, no, no. I understand the adoption that. Adoption has been accelerated yeah. enormously in the last two, three years when Let's Encrypt became available. Because before Let's Encrypt SSL certificates were expensive, Hmm. which is, okay, I'll pay for it, but hard Hmm. to get because you actually had to send your uh, personal information to a company to verify who you were because it was all built for big business, banks, finance institutions, stuff like that. Let's Encrypt came up and it offered a fully automated way of doing this with, Mm -hmm. okay, it only gives you half of the SSL thing, It does the encryption stuff, but it doesn't guarantee that the site that you're visiting is actually owned by the company that claims Mm. to be on the page. But for most of SSL at the moment, when you say it's almost ubiquitous, that's for the encryption layer, not for the proving who you are. Because those are still the hard way to do because, hey, you still need to prove who you are. Um, But the uh, security through uh, encryption, that has been, um, I think if not 100%, 90% uh, due to Let's Encrypt becoming available. And that's also for me personally. I mean, looking at mm. our own infrastructure here, all our stuff is also encrypted. Without mm. Let's Encrypt, I would not have been able to do that. And the Let's Encrypt revolution, aha, nice word, is also mm. even more important because due to the fact that you can fully automate this thing, a Let's Encrypt certificate is valid for three months maximum. Mm. You need to renew it all the time. So things like uh, root certificates being uh, leaked or whatever, Mm -hmm. well, the longest that can be a problem is three months because at that point, those certificates built on that root certificate are not valid anymore. So it actually is a very good way of working. And the thing works very well, gets integrated in a lot of stuff. These days, if you have any kind of CMS or whatever platform, there's often already a Let's Encrypt plugin available. And that makes it relatively, but this—it's an easy button basically, and the moment the easy button becomes available, that's when things that are a uh, a pain in the backside mm. become okay. It's there anyway, so I'm not going to disable it. So let us hap—let's make it happen. And that basically, for me, has been the last year or so.
1: Interesting, interesting. So that—I mean, it makes it makes perfect sense. Um, I must admit, I I thought the. I thought the transition was longer than that. I thought it was closer to like five years. That yeah, seemed. but it was like
0: very incrementally, and then that's encrypted.
1: Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I I didn't know the detail behind it. I must admit, I didn't know that that kind of story. My I just view. I just yeah. Well, I, I just knew that going back, you know, probably as I say, only a handful of years ago, and time. And has diluted somewhat and strange over the last few years but beyond that you know it ssl sites were yeah. not uncommon but it was it was a relatively small percentage and it just it's completely flipped it's like personal vanity sites that people don't care about hey. are pretty much the are pretty much the only things that don't have i was going to say um well, so this
0: these days they do because they usually on a kind of uh, the wordpress block sites or the the thing from google i forget the name for now and those mm. these recently just come with ssl enabled mm. you can't not have it basically but for the adoption thing actually the websites were later the first services that were ssl encrypted were the mail servers TLS yeah. encryption on mail servers was, was yeah, uh, yeah. something. That's actually what, I, when I did that on my own mail server, I had to go through the, here's my passport, copy, uh, mm. have a Zoom, well Zoom didn't exist then, but have actually a telephone conversation to show who you were. That took a lot of effort and it was very expensive, to be honest. That was, I mean, don't think hundreds of dollars, it was more than that. Mm. Um, and now it's just, yeah, this works brave new world
1: yeah and yet still people are struggling with pki so
0: well people (sighs) are struggling with automation and this is where the whole devops thing comes into play cicd and that kind of stuff ssl used to be a very procedural bureaucratic movement which you couldn't automate and a lot of people are still doing that and that breaks automation will make it I mean, again, I haven't looked at my SSL certificates in a year or so, I think it just happens. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, then of course you upgrade something, library changes, thing crashes, automation, and that's where you should have your synthetic testing or whatever you have to make it uh, work still. And I must admit I could do better, I guess. But larger companies should be doing this correctly. And yet, it's the largest ones that fall over because the last one was Amazon, I think, that had a problem that uh, kind of t- pulled down uh, those very valuable and life saving things like Tinder and Facebook.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Back, moving to on. <laughs> 90% of data breaches target servers. You don't say. Yeah. So.
0: I mean, this is a double one. I mean, I'm going to let you go first. Uh,
1: so, first of all, um, this comes from the Verizon uh, DBIR, so Data Breach Investigations Report, which, if you haven't read like they always produce very very detailed um reports i would thoroughly recommend there's a link to the actual uh, exec brief but the the main report is usually very very good reading i haven't read the 2021 one i'm not as much in that space Shocking. at the moment but uh they typically are excellent but so if we think about this, uh, like taking away from the this apparently ninety percent, what what would you say is is outside of of you know server compromises? I mean, account compromises. course, mm, uh, I'll be on the server? I mean, the the problem is that it's servers all the way down, right? Like the the cloud is just someone else's servers, um, so like it's not running. It's not Don't running on potatoes. The
0: <laughs> There's a lot of desktop environments in the cloud as well, right? Those run yeah. on servers, but those are exactly servers. they're desktop things. But the but thing they're... I've got a, a, a thing with is the target, because sure, Databases is target servers because that's where the data resides. That doesn't mean that the server was the point of entry. And I think point of entry is much more the desktop of a person that opens an email, which is stored on the server, but it opens on a client, uh, uh, email client, clicks a link, gets fished, mm. whatever, and then they get in and then they move, dr- dig down back to the server because that's basically what the data is, obviously. But i mean there's a target service yes if you don't have a server you're at less of a risk because you have no data basically that's the end i mean what you have in your hard disk on word documents is much less of a money uh, pile than what you can get from uh, an oracle database or something like that yeah so it targets yes the end target is a server the point of entry usually isn't because yeah. servers are typically better protected because those are under the the curatella of uh, Mm. IT personnel that should know what they're doing. While me, my laptop, which is company provided, I have full admin rights on that thing. If I didn't, I would not use it, basically, (laughs) that's about it. But I will admit I install stuff on that thing that I shouldn't, and I'm not talking about shady stuff, I'm talking about beta software, pre-releases, things just to test out to see if I can break it, if it breaks something. And that makes it more of a problem. That being said, my laptop is totally disconnected from the corporate network. Mm -hmm. I don't even have a VPN connection because I don't need it. It's all SaaS service anyway. So how big of an uh, intrusion is it? I think my mail coming in and me being tired and clicking a link I shouldn't is a bigger problem than the OS on my laptop.
1: So the thing that I think is interesting about this is it's the the comment about target's servers but i think about it from a slightly different perspective and i think about this as 90% of data breaches target servers to me this gets me thinking about those situations that we know exist where people people know that uh, there are insecure either versions of you know certain services up and running or you know default passwords and default account mm-hmm. credentials or things like that, and that's for applications installed on the server, you mean then? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And like the the amount of um, you know you go and go and put an instance up on the internet and and listen to the the sort of port scanning that very yeah. rapidly you'll you'll start to see um, and attack spraying that you'll you'll start to see in, in the majority of cases that is what i think this is more coming from the angle of because the the majority of those kind of scanning style attacks are looking for services that are running on servers i mean there was the there's been a a number of very very widely popularized um breaches of various well-known um services that, uh, you know, people happen to leave insecure yeah. and uh, then data gets data gets breached.
0: Yeah, I mean, even though the vendors will give you good advice on securing the stuff, there's bunches of uh, databases, Elasticsearch servers out there. They get the news every day. That's sad, shouldn't happen because there's plenty of tools to secure, that's all that stuff, but it's still something that happens. Now the differentiation I would make here is that when, for instance, you have a WordPress site, let's uh, pull it back close to home, uh, that does get uh, port scans and they try to log in and do things and whatever. However, if they breach that, it's very hard to move outside of it. So typically those attacks are built to hijack the service to make sure that the WordPress site starts serving stuff that it shouldn't be serving, it might be malware or whatever but it's hard to go from that application, WordPress, to the Oracle database, because there is less of a, you can't get good, it's harder Mm -hmm. to get good credentials that way, Mm -hmm. which is why I think that the intrusion through the desktop by sending a phishing email to an important person that clicks on a link and changes the password. And now I have his user ID, his, his, his real credentials, and I can start digging on and getting more of it. I think there's a difference there. And when you then say data breaches target servers, sure, hijacking a service allows you to look at the data in that service, true, mm-hmm. but phishing and getting the credentials of a person will probably get you more of that, but it's uh, it's more laborious. It's a hard yeah. way to do it. So. If you look at your return on investment as a malware writer, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure if we should go in that. Um, it's definitely better to go for the servers because you you hit the model load often enough with a smaller load. Yeah while if you do a lot of work, you can get a bigger the real model load, but it'll take a longer time, a lot more effort to get it if you don't do it to the servers. And of course, uh, that's the last thing, which also is important. Yeah, the servers have again, a lot of internet-connected, internet-facing um, sockets open. So again, your attack surface is a lot larger. That being said, looking at my Windows system and all the, I was gonna say a bad word, uh, uh, weird stuff that gets installed when you uh, uh, attach a new keyboard or whatever, I'm not entirely sure how big this, If is it still cheese or just whole? <laughs>
1: I mean I I think that we we're in a position where you look at the um you look at the the uh, elements they talk about overwhelming majority of services uh, of um target servers 50% of the breaches were web application servers mm. Twenty-five percent were mail servers. Um, it does make me wonder, though, what the rest of that is mailed up, made out of. Um, yeah, I guess we could go and look, but I don't think we're going to. <laughs> so yes, as actually that that kind of nicely brings us on to uh, the next one, which is again a very high number. 96% of web attack-based mail server compromises involve the cloud. Actually, that's not... Yeah. I mean,
0: yes, of course. I mean, 90% of all mail servers run in the cloud, so...
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think we skip over that one. Um, the next one, hybrid cloud breaches cost one one nine million less than those affecting public clouds what do you make of this one um lies lies and statistics Uh,
0: (laughs) this is so can interpret it in so many different ways i mean basically if you're hybrid that means only part of your stuff is in the cloud it just means part of your stuff is not in the cloud so if your cloud part gets infected your on-premise stuff does not get infected so you will have a, a lesser build than if everything was in the cloud kind of makes sense it doesn't mean that hybrid cloud is per definition safer i'd say it's even more unsafe potentially always potentially because you'll have a lot more connectivity between two parts I and mean, i earlier said cloud has a bigger attack surface so it'll get attacked more if you're doing a hybrid cloud that means that all the stuff on premise also needs to be connected to the internet to have that hybrid available which means that your attack surface on premise is also very large so yeah yeah i don't know uh, i'm not
1: i'm not sure about this one because it just it just feels strange because they they talk about um there being actually three categories on-prem private and public cloud Uh, but the graph showed shows public cloud private cloud hybrid cloud which is not the same thing um Unless they're saying that private cloud is, no, because they, they definitely talk about on-prem, private, and public. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have thought that private cloud would be lower cost, hybrid cloud would be medium, and public cloud would be larger. Like, I'm, just, I'm surprised uh-huh. that private cloud and hybrid cloud uh-huh. are, are in that order.
0: Yeah, The only thing I can think of is that your public cloud and private cloud have a single security domain, Hmm. while in hybrid cloud you have two security domains, the cloud and the on-premise part. So for both public cloud and private cloud, once they're in your cloud environment, once your VMware environment has been compromised, they get access to all your VMs. So it's an all or nothing kind of thing again, just like in public cloud, if they have uh, credentials to go to the portal of whatever cloud provider you're using, they get access to everything. Well, on the hybrid cloud, they kind of need to attack two parts because typically, although these days with an active directory crossing the two the two parts, for example, you mm. might still have a single surface, but not everybody's using active directory for their security. So that is why I think, I don't know, I think that hybrid cloud gives you a some advantage because it's harder to get it all in one go. But yeah, yeah it's, it's a weird statistic, this one. I mean, I know you like graphs and it's colorful and everything, but mm. yeah, not a fan.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure about this one. I think this one's cloudy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so misty.
0: Let's, let's go to the next one. Almost let's, finishing let's up
1: here. Um, so, f- number fourteen: cloud misconfigurations. Represent 15% of initial attack vectors in data breaches.
0: Uh, I'm sure that cloud misconfigurations in general, not only cloud is a way of people getting in. If you think like misconfiguration means I didn't remove the default password. I mean, if I installed my uh, MariaDB and I don't run the secure script, uh, yeah, that's a problem, I guess, Um, 15% no idea if that's a correct number or not might well
1: be i have no idea i find it a little bit strange though because i I, again it's not the uh it's not the number as such that i think is strange but i just i wonder what the rest of the initial (laughs) attack vectors look like because Uh, cloud misconfigurations to me i mean that's things like um you know you accidentally removed the default security group that had it that had your instances isolated from everything and then you exposed them all to everything and, you know, someone got in that way. That's, but like, what, what are the, I suppose the other initial attack vectors are compromised from, um, you know, an individual within the organization. Individuals,
0: bugs, um, update policies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm surprised that number's so low, honestly.
0: I think the subset of user error, and Mm. if user error is like 30 to 40%, then this is a subset of that. Well, 15% is like a third of the user errors. Kind of makes sense. Uh, For me, mostly this is unfamiliarity with a new stratagem. Ah, New word Mm. word of the day. Uh, I mean, if you're going to cloud and haven't done cloud before, things like security groups, VNets become much more important, not just for the network people, but for the infrastructure as a whole. So yeah that will give you some extra vulnerability, potentials, whatever. So yeah, that kind of makes sense. I'm not that. Uh, okay. It's just that it's part of the migration thing. And the the main thing I think for organizations is to be aware of this. And mm-hmm. I think that's mainly the, the whole idea of this article in, uh, as a whole, basically m- give people awareness that if you go into a cloud, you got to be careful cause new things uh, the, the i mean your map ended here now you're going to cloud there be dragons so yeah be aware
1: yeah i mean it that uh, moves nicely on to the next one which is 65% of cloud network security instance stem from user error which this i'm almost surprised isn't higher because the I think that the challenge with this, as with a lot of cloud areas, but I think specifically cloud um, cloud networking, I think is orders of magnitude more complicated than physical networking. I don't know how you feel about that. Uh,
0: yes and no. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, yes. But on the other hand, uh, you, no. don't hear, <laughs> you don't see it as a user of a cloud environment most of that cloud stuff is out of your reach you only see the virtual layer on top of it Mm. the actual complication of the cloud provider's network infrastructure that's totally abstracted from you and you shouldn't be able to touch that if you're able to change pgp protocols and and, and routes things like that (laughs) that something is wrong in that cloud i would say so often the, the 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 actual Virtual physical, if I can say it like that, of your network topology is a lot easier in the cloud. Mm. But because it's a virtual uh, layer, you have to be aware of things like security groups, VNets, how these interacts. If I have a, a, a certain yeah. hierarchy of rules at, at a certain point, what is enabled and not enabled. If you're running containers and virtual machines on an infrastructure, how does this all work together? So the complexity is much more on the software-defined part of the whole network yes. thing, and less yeah. on the is this cable in the right port or do I have horizontal or vertical network topologies. You don't really see that, but it's yeah. So it, it is complicated, yes, but on a different way that you might think if you're in an infrastructure on-premise uh, situation at the moment.
1: Did that, yeah, was that in any way clear? Uh, <laughs> sort of, and I think I th- perhaps we're in violent agreement here. Because I think that the challenge is from the challenges i've seen organizations facing with this is the it's the interoperability between multiple different ways to configure things on a cloud provider that is like the interoperability between them is not always clear until you've got a very significant level of expertise in that i think that's that's the thing that is yes you're right it's at the software it layer yes obviously they have no access to the underlying or shouldn't have any access to the underlying networking i just think the the cloud providers don't do a great job again in my opinion on making the complexities of the networking any easier for people to understand and certainly any easier to to pick up um the like the fundamentals are pretty simple but you can very quickly get down some rabbit holes that i've 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 seen people i consider to be very experienced network engineers spend literally days trying to unpick why something why a particular situation is happening and it ends up being some weird interaction between this service and that service and another service it's just it doesn't surprise me that there's a lot of cloud security network user error
0: yeah but it's a double edged sword or even a triple edged sword if that exists because on the one hand if you make it easier to use you have to take away flexibility and mm-hmm. typically people move to the cloud they want a lot of flexibility for the networking but it's because because it has to be done the way they want to make it uh, happen and giving more flexibility means taking away easy buttons. And you have to be aware of what you're doing then and having a kind of dual layered approach where you can choose for the easy, wizard-driven, and then you can drill down. I haven't really seen cloud go there. And the third edge of the sword for me is, don't forget also the virtual appliances you can deploy in a cloud Mm. environment for application firewalls, web firewalls, uh, load balancing, all that kind of stuff, uh, SSL offloading, it can get quite complicated and the cloud provider isn't responsible for the ease of use of uh, virtual appliance xyz you might be using in your cloud topology there so yeah is it the cloud could they do it better probably on the other on, on, the, on the fourth edge of the sword I, i'm keeping I keep finding edges on this sword this also moves very quickly. how on earth will Especially. you
1: hold this sword it sounds very cumbersome very gingerly. <laughs>
0: But it's also a very fast moving uh, area. I mean, it's settling down a little bit now within the last five years or something, the virtual appliances and cloud layouts have, I was going to say mature, I'm not going to say mature, (laughs) but have changed Mm. very much, a lot more is possible. More flexibility has been added and a lot more potential mistakes are present. Uh, One thing I was, when I read this first, I was thinking, hang on. 65% Sixty-five percent of cloud security incidents are user error, and this is done by Palo Alto. They're just saying it's not their hardware; it's the user's fault. But mm-hmm. not, not true, not true, not true, because they said sixty-five, and apparently, Gardner, who knows everything, obviously says it's ninety-nine. So,
1: I guess Palo Alto uh, has more yeah. faith in the users than the Gardner does. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to touch that with a ten-foot <laughs> <football>. pole. <laughs> so, wrapping up, wrapping up things uh, as we're running a little long. Um 30% of organizations don't use adequate cloud security controls. Please define adequate. Yeah. I mean again, this is I I think this is coming from a a point of I don't believe I I believe that for them in the majority of cases, cloud providers provide safe defaults for a lot of things. But I also Mm. know that in a lot of cases People disable those safety faults so they can get something working quickly, <laughs> and then in many cases, those people then forget or yeah, maybe.
0: But this is, a, this is a proof of concept. You don't need security for now. It's just to be I'm just testing
1: something. Yeah, ten years yeah. later, that thing is still in production. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this, I think, is something where I, I do. This is where I do believe the cloud providers do a pretty good job. Like I think they're very aware of the you know the things we have talked about about the um area of attack surface area of attack and them being a, a, a juicy target for a lot of people and I think cloud providers do think security first um okay. in a lot of ways exactly like they, they've got to but I also know that there are a lot of users of these services that you know just just i'll just disable this for now just to get it up and running and uh yeah this this unfortunately does not surprise again like the only thing that surprises me is probably that that number isn't higher than 30 but security
0: always gets in the way of good productivity <laughs> if the world was an more honest place we would be much more productive
1: okay so wrapping up our security uh set 83% of cloud breaches stem from access vulnerabilities. I mean, yes. It doesn't I mean yeah, we we talked earlier about right? Yeah, exactly. Like we talked earlier about the uh the service scanning port scanning you know that that is rife on the internet at the moment. I do wonder actually how much uh, internet traffic is taken up with Botnets scanning for for vulnerable services. I bet it's probably quite a significant, uh, uh, quite a significant chunk. But yeah, this this doesn't surprise me whatsoever. Um, whether it's people not leaving, uh, not updating services, whether it's people um, deploying services and leaving default settings, like, all of these things, in my view, are our access vulnerabilities
0: yeah and things will get so much better when everything goes back it goes over to IPv6 where all of these people are testing stuff behind there it's secure because it doesn't let it through not firewalls
1: <laughs>
0: and then IPv6 just puts it all on the internet I, I mean as I know in this region the ISPs are now putting everybody by default on IPv6 mm-hmm. I'm kind of yeah I mean how many security cameras doorbells whatever are just open on the internet now because well it was behind a net firewall I didn't have to care about it now i do really
1: mm, yeah i'm but not going to touch, touch the ipv6 uh, uh with a barge probably either and with that we wrap up part two uh the big question of course Yon, is this going to keep you awake at night
0: Uh, Not anymore. It kept me awake last night because I had to prepare mentally for this episode, obviously, but now that it's done with, I can now sleep easy again until next week.
1: Fair enough. Well, in that case, that's all the time we have for today and tonight. You can support this podcast by becoming a Patreon. Every contribution helps. We're on YouTube. You can like subscribe, comment, hit the notification bell, do all the YouTube things please go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page. And for more information about the podcast, you can also follow us on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag. Send your feedback to podcast at RoaringElephant.org. Until next time, my name is still sleeping soundly, Dave.
0: And my name is well-rested, Yul.
1: We'll look forward to talking to you next week. For some more to <laughs> <laughs> See you.